This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Well, a lot of stuff going down in the crypto markets. And, you know, I like to think of myself as both an optimist and a skeptic because you can't be a successful investor unless you're both, honestly. You have to have a vision about things. You have to think optimistically about your ideas for the future. Hopefully the world is continuing to grow and innovate, and that's why there are things to invest in. But you always have to be a skeptic. You always have to say, what's really needed to make this idea succeed? Or what will I see if this idea fails? And so I brought on Omen Malakan, who not only was helping run all things crypto at Citigroup, but he's the author of a brand new book, the best book ever about crypto, Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets and Platforms. And I told Omen that's a big title, but it's a book by Omen Malakan called Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets and Platforms. I asked Omen, and you're going to hear it right now, I asked him, why should I believe in Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these things? What good are they really? Everyone says nothing backs them. What backs these things? And Omid explained to me, and it was the best explanation I ever heard. So here it is. So Omid, you're like a Bitcoin super specialist. I like to say you helped Citigroup manage their whole Bitcoin strategy for a while when you were at Citigroup. Now you are author of the book, uh, well, it's about to come out, Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. And you have a previous book from 2018, The Story of the Blockchain, A Beginner's Guide to the Technology Nobody Understands. That's a good title. Your newest book, not my favorite title, Rearchitecting Trust. It's like hard to say. That's true. It is. But I, I, I actually fought with my editor who... Pamela Van Giesen is uh, one of the many people we know in common and may have yes. been the person who introduced us initially yes. years ago. Um, I, I had to fight with her because she too, uh, she was like, you got to say Bitcoin or crypto or, or something in the title. But I Maybe really you could have just called it the crypto cure. I could have, but I really wanted to emphasize the fact that this is a different kind of crypto book because it's, it's really a book about trust and it's more about what the different parts of life that crypto could change than it is about like what is a blockchain or how does it work. And let's start with that. I want to be a skeptic again. This is my one chance to play the crypto skeptic is when I talk to you. Great. And by the way, we're going to have you on again to talk more about the book. By the way, last time you really helped me understand what trustless really meant. Like I never really understood when they said Bitcoin is trustless. And the last episode we did about crypto, you really did a good job explaining that. But here's where I'm a skeptic. When the web started, a lot of people were saying the web and the internet were fads, but I knew it wasn't a fad. I knew it was life-changing and it wasn't that hard to figure it out. If you used it, you saw that this was amazing. I click on something and I could read it or buy it. Like all information was, as they say, at my fingertips. With crypto, I'm bullish on it for a lot of reasons and a lot of reasons that we've talked about in the past, but what can you really do with Ethereum or crypto in general that you can't do with just centralized databases and something that I care about? 
So let's go back to, just to quickly summarize, when we talked last time, a solution that's trustless is one where you don't have to trust anyone, but you can trust the outcome, whatever that might be. So as an example, if I wire you money and I'm at Chase and you're at some weird bank, it might not get there. That's what we don't, we don't always know. Yeah, in fact, most of the activity that we do on our daily lives is what we call a trusted activity. Uh, this is very true in the financial domain, but even in places like social media. Um, like you trust that hopefully like Mark Zuckerberg isn't reading all of your DMs on Instagram right now, but he might be. Even what we see now with the debate between Elon Musk and the Twitter board about like what percentage of the uh, users on Twitter are bots or fake, we're not sure. So when we say something is trustless, it's like you don't have to trust Elon Musk or the Twitter board or a programmer or the banker, the payment processor, whoever, you can just trust the outcome. So with a platform like Ethereum, what that means is that we can have code that's executed in a trustless fashion. Like you and I could write some instructions that determine literally anything, right? It could be like, we're going to place a bet on a football game, for example. Right. And, right, and that's something today we can do directly. We can do it through a bookie. We can do it through a casino. But those are all trusted solutions. We have to each trust each other or the bookie. Although I can do it like, let's say, on an online platform like DraftKings. Okay, yes. and I... And I trust, even though the code is not open source like it is with Bitcoin, I'm not reading the code of Bitcoin either. I, I trust the code of DraftKings that if I place a bet, the bet wins, I'm going to get my money. I don't really have that many issues of, of, I understand there's a slight issue of trust because maybe the company goes bankrupt in between the time I place the bet and the time I collect my money. But the odds are it's not going to go bankrupt, which is why I use DraftKings versus XYZ.com or whatever. Most things I do... I don't really think about the trust issue. That's fair. Um, and yeah, I, I think like probably millions of people use solutions like DraftKings, which is the provider of trust. However, one, they're paying for it. So I imagine the DraftKings of the world are highly profitable because when you put them in that intermediary position, then they can charge a high spread. Two, um, one way that DraftKings is presumably trustworthy, is that it's regulated. It has to get licenses and the government's looking over them. But that has its own downsides because, for example, until not that long ago, I'm pretty sure New York State residents were not allowed to use DraftKings because it wasn't approved in the state. And there are other situations where the government might come in and say, don't give these people access or you know, we're confiscating so-and-so's sports betting winnings because we think they're a criminal or a bad person or a foreigner or something. But this covers like fringe cases. Like let's say, and by the way, I don't bet on DraftKings, but we're using that as an example. I don't think I, you know, if I'm place a bet on DraftKings, I am not a fringe case. I, I might make a bet and I expect to get paid and I expect the government doesn't care about my winnings or losings. Uh, and I trust it now. Yes. I think, Everybody at some point in their lives could fall under the category of a fringe case. Like if you're having IRS issues, they could put a lien on your winnings at DraftKings and you have no say in it. And obviously, but obviously that will happen with Bitcoin at some point too. If you go through a regulated, if 10 years from now there's a regulated gambling site that uses crypto, the IRS will have some interactions with it. Yeah, true. I think um, 
it's fair to say that in terms of those extreme fat tails, then there are fringe cases that are unlikely. So most people don't have to worry about them. Uh, otherwise, then there is one, the cost question. Um, and I think a simpler example of like why Ethereum offers a feature that some centralized service doesn't, if you think about ticket resales, like the StubHub and Ticketmaster and all those services are providers of trust. We use them because it's safer to buy a ticket through them than like going to a scalper on the street, right? The scalper might sell us a counterfeit or rip right. us and, off. And this is a good example. This is actually my favorite example is ticketing. Yeah, and, and like the cost of centralized trust from a stub hub, I believe, comes out to something like 30% between what they charge the buyer of the ticket and the seller of the ticket. Um, if you could replicate that experience on a blockchain, which is fairly simple to do, like the ticket's just an NFT, um, now, instead of 30%, maybe the buyer and seller are paying 1% or 5%. And because it's a fully programmable platform in a way that StubHub isn't, we could program the ticket. Wow. So wait, so this is very interesting because you what you did was you just quantified what trust costs. So right. So, so Scalper, um, because, you, because there's not a lot of trust there, uh, it might be 100% if you find a good Scalper right. and they're charging you for a ticket. For StubHub... Uh, you're right. It's like 30% higher than or lower than what you would, oh no, higher than what you would pay from the Knicks. You might buy a Knicks ticket 30% higher at StubHub. So that's, and you're saying with the, with, if you bought this over, so by the way, there's a, uh, an altcoin, uh, Theta. I don't know if you know it, uh, which just, um, said they're going to create, uh, ticketing capabilities within hmm. their coin using NFTs. And, so whatever their transaction fees are, that's the that's the cost. That's the extra cost of the ticket. Yeah, I didn't know about it, but um, I do know there are many people working on it. Uh, and let's go one step further in terms of like what you can do on a blockchain, because everything on Ethereum or most blockchains are programmable. Um, then what the original issuer could do, like what the Knicks could do if they were to sell Knicks tickets on the blockchain as NFTs is write a few lines of code that says every time this ticket changes hands that I get X percent royalty. So that's now going back to a cost like StubHub had, but instead of the money going to the middleman, it's going to the venue. Now, why couldn't there somebody create just a secure database that does this? Like, why can't I just create a company that does this for the Knicks? You could, but then you would be a StubHub competitor, right? And you would presumably charge close to what they charge because you can. I see. So with a, if, if they're doing this on blockchain in a smart contract, the, well, scalpers, though, will still charge an overhead based on demand, but you're saying it won't be as high as what StubHub StubHub charges over and beyond, like a fee, like a 30% fee on top of what the scalper would like to charge. Exactly. And I, I'm no economist. I imagine economists are already thinking about this, but it would be interesting in order to use the, uh, the royalty fee as a way to cut down on scalping. Like if the Knicks say, we're selling these tickets for 200 bucks, and if anybody wants to flip them, there's a 50% royalty that goes back to us. 
Now as a scalper, you're like, oh man. So scalpers are out of the business because any DeFi exchange could just, it just says, hey, uh, tickets are, we're open for sales on NFT tickets. Yeah. So that, that's, uh, that actually, you just brought up another thing that you get on Ethereum that you don't, if you just had a single purpose sort of database, which almost all financial stuff is, is this idea of composability, uh, which is like, you can take the output of any project and use them as the input of any other project. So for example, if uh, you are going to have an event and you're going to sell tickets for this event, you being James Altucher, the tickets are going to go for a million dollars each. And they're like, of course, they're like investable assets that people would want to own and keep as part of a diversified portfolio. Then you would want a marketplace for these tickets. You might even want a place for people to be able to like use them as collateral to borrow money. If you were just doing this inside your own proprietary database, you would have to build all that infrastructure from scratch. But on the blockchain, you can say, hey, there are already these DeFi protocols for trading and collateral and lending, and they can accommodate literally any tokenized asset on Earth. So the James Altucher ticket will now benefit from that composability. So let's say I buy tickets for the 2024 Olympics. In 2023, I put them on a DeFi exchange and I say, I want to borrow money and it becomes a market. So someone says, yeah, we'll take these tickets as collateral. We'll give you 13, you have to pay 13% interest and it could be worked out like that on a DeFi exchange, but nowhere else really. Like I can't, you go to the NASDAQ and do that, or I can't go to my bank and borrow money off of my Olympic tickets. Right. And, or if you did, like it would take him an inordinate amount of bespoke work to help it make this happen one time. But because everything on a blockchain can seamlessly interact with everything else on a blockchain and everything's composable, you can plug that Olympic ticket into literally any existing solution or protocol, which then means from a entrepreneur's point of view, from an innovator's point of view, the pace of innovation in crypto is much faster than you get in the traditional economy, even within fintechs, because everything's like plug and play. You can just show up and the crypto kids call it money Legos. You could be like, you know, if I take one part of this DeFi protocol and another part of that NFT protocol and just combine them, then I can create something new and interesting. And all I have to do is like write 10 lines of code. So this is actually really interesting. So you've mentioned three things so far that really neatly answer this question that I ask everybody. I, I had Kevin O'Leary on the podcast, you know, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. Yeah. And I asked him this question, like, why do we even need Bitcoin or Ethereum? And his, his company, by the way, Wonderfy, does solve another major issue I have with crypto, which is that it's not easy to use. And I think <laughs> Wonderfy makes it a lot easier for the common person. Yeah. But he himself, I felt, was one of the rudest people I've ever had on this podcast. And he, his answer was basically, oh, well, look at my collectible watch, my watch collection. I can now make NFTs of my watches. Like, I'm like, that's not really an answer. Yeah. And he, he really couldn't answer the question. And then he just, he literally like went to sleep on the podcast. But that's another story. <laughs> um so, but you said, you said three things. One is there's an actual, you can quantify the cost of trust. And, and you said it was 30%, like in the ticketing space, for instance. So, so like in a centralized solution, you're probably going to pay 30% more than a smart contract solution that's just built onto this public 
blockchain. And then you mentioned this um, composability, which is a hard word to get my, my head around, but essentially what happens is, is that anything that has a potential market can instantly be tradable. And that's not the case in today's financial markets. So for instance, let's take Kevin O'Leary's watch collection as an example. If people wanna buy his watch collection, he has to go look really hard to find watch collectors. But with DeFi, he could just make, and if I'm proving his point actually, he could just make NFTs out of them. And if there's a market for it, if there truly is a market for it, it'll it'll sell or he'll 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 have traders as opposed to you know finding very specific collectors and you know doing a lot of personal work to find these these collectors and sell to them and then the third thing you said was um because of this aspect because blockchain allows you to find markets faster the pace of innovation in financial technology like like what markets might you know the discovery of what markets might even exist is going to be a lot faster Yes, exactly. And and let's now bring in another interesting first principle of crypto, which is the idea of censorship resistance. So censorship resistance is just a fancy way of saying nobody can keep anybody else from doing anything, whether that's using a solution or building their own solution. And the simplest example of that is Bitcoin. Anybody can start a wallet, generate a private key, and start like owning Bitcoins. That's a stark contrast to a bank account or a fintech where the bank or the fintech or the government that regulates it actually often practices censorship by design. They say, well, these people get bank accounts, but those people don't. Um, where I you know, And just to, just, to, just to interrupt you just one second, the other day I was opening up a bank account for a company I started and this was just literally like two, two or three days ago. It was on last Friday. And the guy said, if you, I, it's not up to you filling out the forms, whether we open the bank account, he, he pointed to himself and he said, I get to decide yeah. if I'm going to open up your bank account or not. And that was really interesting to me. And I'm like, well, why, why wouldn't you? And he literally said, well, if someone says we're going to do stuff with Bitcoin, for instance, I might not open their bank account. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but this is what a, you're saying is, is that there's no possible way. I mean, and nor, and, and, and the reason this is fascinating to me is normally I don't care about censorship. Like Twitter's not censoring me anytime soon, even though maybe I've been on the friendship points and in general, I'm not worried about that. But you're talking about it in a bigger context, like companies in subtle ways can refuse to do the things you want them to do. Yeah, especially for financial applications because the current design of the financial industry in most countries is based on a presumption of guilt. Meaning, if you wanna to go to your local supermarket or use Netflix, they don't have like a security guard standing there being like, well, who are you? What's your name? Let me do a background check, right? They let you in because there's a presumption of innocence. But then if you do something shady, like try to steal avocados or share your Netflix password with too many people, then they kick you out, right? You're innocent until proven guilty. Banking, because of laws like the Bank Secrecy Act in the US and anti-money laundering and sanctions and all that is designed on a presumption of guilt. Your friendly local banker has to assume that you're a criminal and it's up to you to prove that I'm not a drug dealer, I'm not money laundering, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not some Bitcoin person, whatever, 
which for 90, for, for frankly, like me, you, and most people who listen to this podcast just is a nuisance, right? It means there's more paperwork. It takes longer to open accounts. Have you ever had a bank tell you, uh, Mr. Malikon, uh, within 30 days, you have to close down your bank account with us. It's been great working with you. Don't come back. No, I haven't. That has happened to me where I did a deal once where I got some shares in a company that was a penny stock mm -hmm. and I tried to put them into my uh, bank account and they literally, some, somebody called me with like a fake name, like a debt collector name, like, you know, Johnny Strong. This is Detective Johnny Strong working for so-and-so bank. And we're, we're, we, you have to immediately close down your bank account and you have 30 days to remove all of your assets. And I said, why? And, and we said, I can't tell you. And so I called other people at the bank and they said, oh, that's ridiculous. We're going to call that guy. And then they, they called me and said, we, you have to take your assets out of the bank account. And no one will give me the reason. It was because of these penny stocks though, but wow. I was just shut out of this one bank. Yeah, it's terrifying, right? And, and, um, yeah. and, and for a lot of people who are, for whatever reason, like they don't have the right social security number, they're undocumented in some countries or just some um, excluded minority, this means they just don't get banking services. Uh, so crypto, starting with Bitcoin, really prides itself in this idea of censorship resistance. Nobody can keep anybody out, which is not perfect, right? There are downsides to it, like it does open the door to certain kinds of um, criminal activity, but then there are other tools being built that crack down on that. And actually, the the current amount, the irony of like the way the banking system is built on censorship is that it doesn't work. If you look at the staggering amount of tax evasion, money laundering, sanctions evasion that still happens through the regulated banking industry, despite all of these draconian restrictions, then it looks increasingly like the war on drugs. It's like, wow, all this money, all these people, all this effort and you look at the results and it has clearly failed to achieve any of its goals. Going back to your original Ethereum point, the censorship resistance doesn't just apply to users, it also applies to innovators, which to me is actually in some ways more interesting. Because like if you were a developer, right, forget crypto for a second, you were going to go build your uh, database solution for ticketing, for example. And you say, okay, well, I'm going to open a bank account because I need to accept payments for people using credit cards. And then I'm going to build this thing on uh, the cloud. So I'm going to use AWS. And then I'm going to need these other vendors, you know, whatever their like software product is or their backend solution. And then you can build a business. All of those solutions are theoretically censorable. And this actually happens where like credit card processors suddenly decide that some business is, is not good. So, you know, like this almost happened to OnlyFans because they, they had adult content. So they're like, ah, you know what? We're going to censor your payments. Or cloud providers decide that some businesses are not allowed. This happened to, I don't remember the name, but there was some social media service that was supposed to be like, open to everyone and meant for right-wing people. Yeah, I think Parler I think, uh, was it? Parler. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, so like the cloud provider censored them. So what that means is if you're any 
entrepreneur and you're going to raise money and commit your time and make sacrifices to build the business, you're always at the mercy of all of these censorable solutions. Whereas if you go on the blockchain and say, I'm going to build it on Ethereum and I'm going to like integrate these DeFi protocols, I'm going to accept stable coins for payments, because they all tend to be a lot more censorship resistant, then as an entrepreneur, there's less crazy stuff that could go wrong, which then frees you up to be more innovative and take bigger risks. Okay. Are there more things that I can do with Ethereum and Bitcoin that I can't do without or, or crypto in general? Probably. <laughs> um, a lot of it hasn't been figured out yet. I mean, well, would you throw decentralized computing into the equation? So for instance, I could think of three or four coins easily, which do a kind of decentralized computing that might be hard to do without. So, you know, you know, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yes. You know, everybody could devote a little piece of their computer and, you know, every day SETI sends out tiny pieces of the whole map of the universe and, and it sends it out to all these millions of computers around the world to do some processing to see if any extraordinary signals are coming from that part of the universe. And so that's decentralized computing, but that's a very specific use case. Whereas it's very easy to make, like, like for instance, um, Render is a coin that, that does 3D rendering of VR graphics, which is a very hard thing for a single computer to do. You have to use parallel processing, and now you can um, spread it out over all the computers that hold render tokens. Uh, Theta that I just mentioned does video streaming. Filecoin does cloud storage decentralized across many computers. So maybe the cost of making a decentralized computing solution is easier, although I guess you don't really need Ethereum or crypto to do that. Right. Uh, well, I think actually a lot of those projects that you said probably have their own blockchain that's sort of optimized for those particular yeah, use I'm cases. Yeah, I'm just saying crypto and in, in, crypto in general. Well, you do need the trust-building functionality of crypto for this to be effective. Otherwise, you're really like just rebuilding Amazon Web Services or Dropbox. So th for this... You're talking about the crowdsource model, but like, why not have everybody that has spare CPU cycles or hard drive space, uh, you know, passively earn some income by making those resources available to others who need them, and then you're going to use a token to compensate them. This setup could only work if everybody trusts everybody. Like, I'm not going to suddenly make my hard drive available to some random. Filecoin type competitor, unless I have certain assurances that, for example, like it's not going to steal my data. It's not, and then I'm going to get paid and get paid a fair amount. Um, same thing for the user. Like, oh, I'm going to store my data across random people's laptops. Well, is it actually going to be encrypted in a way that they can't read my docs? So there's a lot of trust assumptions there. And you can have a corporation provide them, but then you really just like replicating. Dropbox, uh, but if you use a, a blockchain with tokens and smart contracts and programmability, theoretically, you can succeed in a way where nobody has to trust anybody, but everybody can trust the outcome. Because it's all public source, like everybody could read the code, right. and find out if it's doing something illicit. Uh, and of course, not everybody reads code, but enough people read the code that you would know if, if something inappropriate is happening. So what's what's another potential? I'm I'm just trying to figure out as many 
reasons to be excited about crypto as possible? So my working thesis is that on a long enough timeline, any service that's a platform model, uh, so, so everything from Twitter to YouTube to Uber to dating apps, you know, the list goes on and on, right? Like the increasingly, like the big success of the internet is entrepreneurs built solutions that create a two-sided market. You have some people who want to provide a service that's driving a cab and then other people who need cab uh, rides. And by facilitating them together, we have achieved these great efficiencies, right? Like we all love Uber and Lyft over like having to hail a yellow taxi cab in the rain. But the fundamental economic problem of these solutions is that the intermediary takes a huge cut. And there is a misalignment of incentives where in the long run, the intermediary's benefit has to come to the cost of everybody else. Like Uber is the perfect example of this. You know, they're still not profitable. And what they need to do to be more profitable is to charge riders more and pay drivers less. So, right. They've been, um, they, they've, they've lived on what I call VC welfare. So like <laughs> venture capitalists have been in part paying for every ride. And now the venture capitalists are no longer doing that because they're a public company. So riders are in fact paying more and drivers are making less. Yeah. And it, and there's this, this misalignment of incentives that leads to like a form of annoying inauthentic, inauthenticity. So Uber's running ads talking about like, oh, we, you know, every driver is an entrepreneur and the gig economy liberates people to seek their dreams. And then you tune into their quarterly shareholder meeting and the analysts are like, what are you going to increase the take rate and pay the drivers less? And the CEO is like, soon, we promise soon we'll screw all of our drivers in order to boost the share price. And, and that's a mild exaggeration. But the CEO of all of these platforms they're doing their job, like they're not accountable. They don't have a fiduciary responsible to Uber drivers or Instagram influencers. They have a fiduciary responsible to their shareholders. So my theory is that with blockchain and tokens and trustlessness, we hopefully can build decentralized versions of these solutions where the Uber drivers and the Instagram influencers are the shareholders. Like they're the people who own the thing and have a say in how it's run. Let's talk about that in the, in the, in the context of Uber or Airbnb, either one, let's talk about this because on the one hand, I like intermediaries and even like Dropbox versus Filecoin. I want a trusted central company I can call if someone loses my files. Mm. Um, and with Uber, if I have a problem with a driver, I want somebody in the middle and I might be willing to pay more for it. I might, I want someone in the middle to call if I have a problem. And that's the benefit of central services like that. That's a very good point. Uh, and I too, actually, um, you know, the thing with like, when you use a lot of these decentralized services is that the user experience is often terrible. And there is this fear factor where it's like, oh, if I make some big mistake and lose my private key or something, I'm done. Uh, you know, I can spend years driving yeah. an Uber, decentralized Uber, and earning decentralized Uber tokens, but then I make one mistake and it all just disappears in the blink of an eye. So I think it, the future is actually a mix where the important things that we do, the core protocols are decentralized, but then most people interact with them through trusted centralized intermediaries. Like 
is already the case with Bitcoin. Most people don't interact with the Bitcoin blockchain directly. They access it through Coinbase or PayPal or Crypto.com or their bank. And I'm fine with that. I think that's actually win-win. Let's continue with Uber as an example. Let's say I'm the Uber CEO and I want to kind of blockchainize the company. Maybe I want to reward drivers with Uber tokens. I want to lower their pay in fiat currency, but maybe proof of driving is how they mine <laughs> new Uber tokens. And maybe those tokens have value because they might be backed by, I don't know, some share of profits of all driving in their area, for instance, or I don't know, because I sort of feel like tokens like that shouldn't just be dropped with nothing behind them. There should be real value behind them. Agreed. And maybe even with riders too, I can, I can get proof of riding. I can, I can mine tokens as well. And then, and because they're backed by some, some real asset value, some cash flow, perhaps then they're, they're, they're sellable on DeFi exchanges for other tokens. Yeah, so you can make it that uh, the simplest would be that riders have to actually pay with that token. So if I have to buy Uber tokens to pay per ride, then the more demand for Uber, the more demand for the token, the higher the value of a token. And then as the driver, that's why you want to earn more of them because you can sell them in a marketplace where other people are purchasing them. That's one model. Um, another model is like what you said, is that you could just, the token is like a form of pseudo equity. And then the company pledges that, all right, once a quarter, we're going to take 25% of all of our revenues from people taking rides, and we're going to buy these tokens and burn them like in a share buyback model. So this is mm -hmm. the part of crypto where we really enter the theoretical sphere. And unfortunately, I don't think anyone has really cracked the model that will work yet. We should do it. Let's uh, just, we just did it. <laughs> <laughs> call Uber right now. Jay, call Uber. Get Travis on the phone. Oh, no, he's not the CEO there anymore. Get whoever the CEO yeah, is on it, the phone and uh, yeah. plug him in. So, yeah, so it seems like the, the to your point of innovating, the, the pace of financial innovation is going to quicken. There might what what we're doing here is we're creating a market that we feel would have interest, and we, using smart contracts, we would be able to very quickly make a token to do this and then start trading it, because so, so, it will have actual assets or actions va uh, you know behind it. Yeah, and if we could fast forward to the point where someone like you has figured out the proper tokenomics that makes this sustainable and grow, then. I don't think there's much disagreement that this is a future state everyone would root for. Like, who doesn't want their Uber driver to have more equity in the company and to have a more of a say in major governance decisions, right? Like, the Uber drivers are the people who make Uber valuable in the first place. If they all stop working, then the company would be worthless tomorrow. And, and you know, this, this is, it, it's true. So, but then you say, well, does this dilute the shareholders? It doesn't, this is the interesting thing about economics. It does not dilute the shareholders at all because they only are earning tokens the faster they actually grow the company. So they're in, everybody's incentives are aligned. Like people always say, oh, when you print a lot of money, there's going to be inflation. And that's somewhat true. 
But if you print a lot of money and the economy grows as fast as you're printing money, then there isn't inflation. The, the, the growing economy absorbs the money you're printing. And so what's happening here is the money supply will increase because now you, know, you not only have dollars, you have Uber tokens and other companies' tokens, but the, the tokens are only created. Money is only printed in, at the same time that economic growth happens, like Uber grows, so Uber tokens are printed. This makes the money supply grow, which is a good thing because then the economy can grow faster and it solves the problem of inflation. Yes, and it aligns incentives between the owners. Where's my Nobel Prize? <laughs> Where... <laughs> uh, I am happy to uh, mint an NFT called the Nobel Prize and send that to you, but I don't know. I can't give you the uh, the million dollars or whatever they get, but a, a million. That's okay. A million That's tokens. Fiat, a million. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah. So I think if, when people figure out how to make these models work, you actually like, you could still just be an investor. You can still say like, I don't want to drive Ubers. I don't even take cabs because I like the bike everywhere, but I believe in this project. So I'm going to, oh, I'm going to buy some of the token and hold it. Cause I think five years from now I can sell them for a profit, but there's going to be a much less adversarial relationship between the investors and the gig workers, right? The, like today, it's literally, do shareholders make money or do Uber drivers make money? But if someone cracks the right model with a token, it's like, well, they either both do well together or they both fail together. This is fascinating because the same tokenomics essentially will work for any company. If you think about it, what is a company? A company is three things. A centralized company is three things. It's a, a, a group of people who need something that they can't get easily. It's a group of people who have extra of something. And it's an intermediary in the middle that handles discovery, search, financial transactions, customer service, and all of those things in the middle. So Uber is that intermediary. There, you know, there's a group of people who need empty car seats. There's a group of people who have empty car seats and Uber is the intermediary, intermediary in the middle that allows you to discover those empty car seats if you need them. It allows for financial transactions. It allows for you know ratings and customer service and all that kind of stuff. And so every, every company is the same. So if you could provide tokenomics that makes that stronger using blockchain, it really only needs a one coin solution to, to solve this across the board. Absolutely. But can I play the skeptic now for a second? I want to tell yeah. you like, A, why this hasn't happened yet. And while we're probably okay. years away from when it does. Some of the lessons learned from the uh, early attempts to do this. One, figuring out the right token model is very complicated and hard. And this is a brand new field of study. So should it be inflationary or deflationary? How much inflation of the new tokens that come out? who gets how much, drivers, owners, riders, et cetera. So figuring out tokenomics is one friction. Next is governance. Because originally in crypto, there was this utopian vision that like, oh, everybody who has a, even one token will vote and the drivers will vote and the riders will vote and we'll have perfect democracy. But um, crypto keeps relearning the lessons of history. So it turns out nobody ever wants to vote. And the voter participation rate for a lot of token-enabled projects is like abysmal. Um, and part of the reason is like most people 
back to your point that why people like companies, they're like, I don't want to think about every small decision, just like put some executive in power who's qualified and let them make the decisions. And if they're bad, we'll fire them and hire someone new. But if the tokenomics are good enough, then you won't really have that many instances of voting that everybody would care about. Well, not that they would care about, but the one thing that centralized entities, whether they're corporations or governments, are very good at is efficient governments. Like, like if you're today, Uber, the CEO says, all right, you know what? I made a decision. As of tomorrow, we're going to increase our rates by 20%. It will happen. Right? It might be a bad decision, but it will happen. A lot of these crypto projects that are actually decentralized get stuck in this governance slog where no one's voting and everyone's just like arguing on chat rooms and then the project doesn't evolve. So there too, there's innovation happening, but it's way early. So you bring up an interesting thing though about the tokenomics, which is basically, let's say you fix that, okay, it's going to be 1% of Uber's revenues every quarter are spread out pro rata among the Uber token holders. And both riders and drivers can mine tokens just by usage and mm -hmm. investors might be interested in buying and selling, you know, cause they want to participate also in those profits. But I guess how much, how many tokens you mine for riding and driving is very unclear. Like how would you figure that out? Right. And because they're programmable, like should all tokens have equal participation rights in decision-making? I don't I mean, you can make it any way. You can say, yes, one token, one vote, doesn't matter if it's hold, held by an investor or driver or a user. Or you can say, no, actually, depending on whose wallet the token is, it changes. So on the one hand, it's great because you could literally do anything. But on the other hand, it's very overwhelming because since you can do anything, you have to do a lot of experimentation to figure out what the right thing to do is. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because I was thinking about this for Notepad, you know, this this site that we've been building to, it's like a Twitter, but you could keep track of your 10 ideas a day. You could search other people's, where I make like an idea coin hmm. and users mine it by writing idea lists. So proof of ideas allows you to mine and also being a node, like validating transactions allows you to mine idea coin and idea coin will be backed by potentially some percentage of cash flows of notepad. But I guess you're right. Like how would you figure out the economics of how much, how many tokens are mined and, and whether you put a max supply on there or, or what happens? Like you can't put a max supply on. So yeah, I think you feel like uh, anyone's have to, a, have to figure out. Yeah. Any aspiring uh, PhD students, um, I think like tokenomics is going to be one of the hottest fields in academia in the next decade, in the same way that like financial engineering has been previously. Well, I guess, you know what, you can actually make, I don't know, I'm going to have to think about this. It's a very good question because if it, if you give too many tokens out, then it could quickly, the, the value of per, let's say idealist in this case could, would, would go down because, uh, uh, too many people were, you know, there's too many tokens out there. So too you're just, inflation, you're yeah. just making idealists now just to keep up right. with what you had before. 
Uh, or the other thing is you could be hurt by the people who, I don't know, or maybe what you do is you increase, you have a new start date um, every quarter where you're, you're basically vesting into 1% of the profits of the company or 10% of the profits of the company so that every quarter new people start afresh so it doesn't have that same dilutionary power. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You'd have to think about it. We've seen all of these problems in crypto already. We've seen projects that uh, had too much inflation in the beginning, and that meant that like their token just would, would always stay down, and that killed the chance to gain any momentum. Because anybody who bought in ended up getting like tokens that are worthless. Uh, we've also seen projects that don't mint enough tokens in the beginning, which means the early adopters have too much of an advantage over new entrants, right? Like you want to have enough inflation that new people are like, oh yeah, you know, if I start doing this, I too can earn some inflation. But if there's not any inflation, then they're like, I can't earn any inflation. I have to just buy my tokens on the market where they're too expensive. Uh, and then there are all these other questions, like you can give it a curve, right? Like Bitcoin famously, every four years, the inflation gets cut in half. It's kind of arbitrary, right? Like it happened to work so far, yeah. but it could have been every three years or it could have been never. Um, so this is where I think it's good to be skeptical. I'm skeptical until actual projects start to show that they figure out a token model that works and is apparently sustainable. That's really good food for thought. Another area where people have been skeptical lately was stable coins because of the, the Luna UST collapse and in particular algorithmic stable coins. So just to explain to the audience, let's, let's very simplified way say there's two types of stable coins. One where a crypto dollar is backed by a real dollar. So for, so for every crypto dollar you have, I can go to the issuer of that crypto dollar and exchange it for a dollar. And then there's these algorithmic stable coins, which is what Luna's UST was, where if somehow UST fell below the value of a dollar, more Luna would be minted to replace it, to, to compensate the owners of UST for losing the value of the dollar. And that got into this death spiral where 7 trillion Luna were, were, were minted. And the stablecoin business is a great business if you think about it because you give me a billion dollars to put into a stablecoin i could buy a billion dollars of overnight commercial paper that pays like almost no interest but i'm still making you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a day it's an enormous business you don't really need an algorithmic stablecoin but is there any chance first off would you agree stablecoins in general not only are they necessary but if they're backed by real assets, they're fine. I don't, I'm not really worried. Yep. Neither am I. And uh, what about algorithmic stablecoins? Some people are now are taking the all or nothing approach, which might be true, which is that no algorithmic approach is going to work. Uh, I think eventually assuming that you're 
The problem with Luna and all algorithmic coins that have come before is it's based on purely circular logic. Like you have the stable coin, it needs something to back it. So it's backed by a coin that serves no function other than being the thing that backs the stable coin. And that's one of those things that works until it right. doesn't. And then it that leads to a death spiral because you're like, wait, the stable coin is falling in value. What backs it? Then you're like, well, this asset that is the backing asset of a stable coin that's falling in value. So that's going to fall in value. So I think on a long enough timeline, is it possible to take a crypto coin of established utility, like if ETH, that has many applications, not just backing a stable coin? And can you introduce an algorithmic conversion where you can mint and burn it to a dollar coin? Possibly, but I don't actually see why we need that. Um, the, these algorithmic stable Particularly coins... Particularly since, since asset-backed stable coins is such a great business, why even bother doing an algorithmic stable coin? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the people who would have been attracted to the algorithmic model are these decentralization maxis that they say, well, because the asset-backed stable coins have cash or securities that are kept off-chain, they're not fully decentralized, which is true. They're not as trustless, which is also true. But me, you, and I think most people are fine with that, right? Like, the, I think that this purely idealistic vision that everything will in the future be fully decentralized is foolish. That's just not how human society works. Even if it's partially centralized, a asset-backed stablecoin is a much better payment instrument than something like a PayPal or a credit card. And we've already seen proof of this that you could argue other than Bitcoin, stablecoins are the killer application for blockchain technology today. I actually just looked up the volumes for the month of May yesterday. I have $750 billion worth of payments happen on Ethereum alone in that one month. To put that number into context, that's more than PayPal and Venmo and TransferWise and Square Cash and every other American payment app combined. Well, what are people paying for? What are people buying on it with Ethereum? Uh, a lot of the stablecoin activity today is actually for like other kinds of crypto capital market activity. So people are trading crypto coins. People are depositing money to earn interest. People are using stable coins to place margin bets. So you can like take your ETH, deposit it in a DeFi uh, protocol, borrow a stable coin against it, and use your stable coin to buy more ETH. Um, but we are starting to see these things be adopted for vanilla payments like paying payroll, buying stuff online, uh, wiring money to invest in a company, et cetera. So, so you're saying basically $750 billion worth of stable coins were used as payments for something last month. Yes. That's just like, like yesterday, I was looking at the exchange DYDX, which is a foreign crypto derivatives exchange. It's $800 million volume on the day. And I'm wondering, is there, are there that many speculators buying $800 million worth of crypto derivatives every day yeah on that one exchange probably it's a derivative exchange right so we're used to this idea even in traditional finance that derivatives like options and futures and stuff can have crazy volumes because it's a lot of people like buying and selling and buying and selling and levering up 10 to 1 and stuff like that. yeah i guess it's true
So, okay. So in terms of like, this is what a th the, the world, the future world that Bitcoin, Ethereum and blockchain are building. These are the things we have to look forward to, which we wouldn't really have otherwise. It would be a lot more complicated otherwise. And, and so we talked about trust. We talked about composability, which we described earlier. We talked about the pace of it, financial innovation is going to be much faster. We talked about censorship resistance. We talked about decentralized computing. Um, we talked maybe about how uh, tokenization could make companies stronger, but that's still up in the air. Uh, is there anything else you would say? And all of these things are very exciting. Like this is this is exciting to me. Um, but is is there more? I think we pretty much covered it. The last thing I would add is, by definition, anything in crypto is global. So, um, it's the rare industry where, in part because the internet's everywhere, and also because it is censorship resistant, and anybody can generate a private key and get a wallet. Um, the potential market size for any crypto-based solution is huge. Right. So, so like for instance, this notion of composability, which basically allows anything you do to create a market that could then be traded as an investable asset, that's a quadrillion dollar. I mean, the, the financial world is a quadr a, a, a one point. There, are, there are one point four quadrillion dollar dollars worth of investable assets out there and including derivatives. And you're basically, you're saying with composability that that could even be much bigger because of crypto and blockchain. Yeah. Composability. And then the, the value that used to go to intermediaries will now go to users. So, um, it, it's just, it's possible that, you know, think of what happened to information once we removed the frictions of like having a phone company or the post office in between you and I communication, communicating the amount of communicating that everybody does now is like a hundred X what it was just 15, 20 years ago. So theoretically blockchain could do that for value. Right. So, so we mentioned ticketing as an industry where trust literally costs you 30%. Um, what other industries do you think there, there's a there's too much value placed on trust? Well, payments. The um, the global revenues of the payments industry is approaching three trillion dollars per year, and as we move to this world where most more things are cashless, then we're entering a situation where like five or seven companies are going to get to tax every activity, right? Every coffee cup, every stock trade, every home bought every uh, currency conversion, that's the centralized model of payments in a world that's cashless. But in a blockchain-enabled world, then like I can send you a stablecoin for effectively free. So that value, that $3 trillion in revenues, now goes to the sender and the recipient. But what about like, uh, there's still transactions, there's like gas fees, for instance, when I do an Ethereum transaction. Yeah, today. Um, same with Bitcoin. Those are being worked on though. And with things like layer two solutions, I think in a couple of years for things like simple stablecoin payments, um, there'll still be transaction fees, but they'll be minuscule. And they'll certainly be a lot lower than today because don't forget, like in America, every credit card transaction costs the merchant on average 2 to 3%. 
So if you can replace that with stable coins, where instead of two, three percent, it's like ten basis points, then you're paying fees, but it's still far more economical. So what do you think of all, uh, like this new bill? There's uh, Senator Loomis and Senator Gillibrand proposed this bill yesterday to start regulating crypto, and I do think this is a step forward. Like big institutions don't can't buy crypto until it's regulated, or so they say. So. What, what do you think of this new regulation? Have you had a chance to take a look at it? I haven't had a chance to take a look at it, um, but based on the headlines, and I agree with you, by the way, that the crypto will have to be regulated to go institutional and to go mainstream. The concern is always when you have people who try to pigeonhole it into laws and regulations written a long time ago for very different kinds of solutions. So... Just like simply like, you know, Gary Gensler, who runs the SEC, thinks that most coins are securities. And he might be right to the extent that they were used to raise money to fund a project. That usually is a security. However, if you invest in a traditional startup that's going to provide some kind of a tech service in the future, you're not going to pay for that service with your stock. But with crypto, you will pay with the token, right? Like even that Uber token that we discussed, on day one, it's a security. You can issue it to raise money to fund decentralized Uber. But then on year two, it's just, it's the currency of the platform. Uh, all of which is to say, I think it's important that we get new regulations that take into account how crypto is different. One relief in the regulation is that they're, going to limit the amount they tax simple payments. So for instance, right now, if I buy Bitcoin, it goes up 10% and then I use it to buy a motorcycle, I'm taxed as if I sold my Bitcoin investment in exchange for a motorcycle. And that's ridiculous. Like that doesn't happen with dollars. If I get $5 and then use it to buy a motorcycle, I don't get taxed on that. So they're, they're limiting the taxes on that. And I think it's I think it's gonna be very rare that they're treated as securities after this bill. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, they they specifically say you, it needs to be it needs to be in place of equity or debt. It needs to play the role of equity or debt. And it, most most crypto securities are clearly not that. Yeah. Like Bitcoin isn't that. Yeah. And I'm a fan of regulations that take into account the evolution of a project. So maybe in the beginning it's a security, but then there are certain check marks of things like utility, decentralization, whatever where uh, both for securities law reasons and for tax reasons, it's not just treated as a utility token or a governance token. It has its own category and it is definitely not a security anymore. So, so it seems like for the trust issue, in, like somebody was, there was an argument I heard the other day, I think on Anthony Pompliano's podcast, where somebody was arguing the mortgage industry is a great case where blockchain would be useful. Like, as a simple example, title insurance. If the title is on blockchain, you don't need title insurance. So any any multi-billion or trillion dollar industry where you could save those billions of dollars because a blockchain is is uh, a blockchain is great for it. A pu pu public, I don't know how to call it, like public source blockchain is is great for that. And w one more thing to be skeptical about is is Bitcoin itself. Like a lot of these applications, we're really talking about Ethereum and, and coins and projects built on top of Ethereum in 95% of the cases. 
So what's the use of Bitcoin? I'm not going to use it as a currency. It's so volatile. I'm not going to use it as a store of value because it's so volatile. Now, maybe eventually it won't be. Um, so what, what's the value of Bitcoin? As opposed, why would I buy Bitcoin over Ethereum? I think Bitcoin is a backup plan. Bitcoin is the, mm -hmm. uh, in case of emergency, break this glass and use this uh, asset. And I think that applies as much to individuals as it does to nations and corporations. Because Bitcoin really is decentralized, almost to a fault. Uh, it's far more decentralized than even Ethereum, which does mean that it will probably never change. No matter what happens with energy prices or ESG concerns or even like technical considerations. But there is an appeal to that to me, which is I think like in time, Bitcoin will become sort of the Switzerland of money, or at least what Switzerland used to be, which was neutral, right? Like it was generally understood even in a crazy time like World War II, it was beneficial to both sides that there was one neutral country that you can still do diplomacy or transactions through or whatever. So now that the global financial system is increasingly politicized and weaponized and breaking into these um, sort of like walled off gardens, I think the appeal of Bitcoin... Even Swiss bank accounts are yeah. opened up now. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the appeal of Bitcoin is sort of the backup plan. So I don't think that we're all going to be like living off of Bitcoin. This is another place I disagree with a lot of crypto people, that one day we'll only have Bitcoin and Bitcoin banking and you pay for your house in Bitcoin and earn interest in Bitcoin. I think more likely Bitcoin is that backup plan that in case you're... Currency enters an inflationary death spiral or the political winds start censoring your access to the financial system. You always have the one neutral outlet. You know, the thing that I get the most out of all this is the area where you're still skeptical, which is a good thing that you're still skeptical on this. But it seems like, you know, to encourage business and the economies to grow, you need to be able to expand the monetary supply so that people can do more things and innovate in more ways. You can't just do it with a fixed supply of money. And it seems like if you can figure out the way to combine tokenomics with, with the growth building process of a business, that is going to be very, that allows you to expand the money supply in a way directly linked to economic growth. Like if you think about COVID in March, 2020, they just printed up money because they were afraid the whole economy, they were just thinking of the economy as one big unit. And so they printed up trillions of dollars to, to, to make sure that one big unit didn't fall apart. And that's, that's the sophistication of economic policy right now. But if you could basically create tokens business by business or project by project where each business has a different rate of economic growth as do, do, do their tokens, you could increase the monetary supply at pace with the growth in the economy, in which case you solve the inflation problem while still growing the economy and during periods of innovation. And so that strikes me as a real exciting use case. And as you say, that maybe that's years away, but that's super exciting. Yes, well put. And when people do figure out, it should unlock a lot of innovation and growth and wealth creation. Yeah, well, Omit, thank you so much once again I'm probably going to forget everything in a week, but this time I'm going to try to write it down. But also there's your book 
that you're going to come on to talk about with your book. People can pre-order Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms by Omid Malakan, M-A-L-E-K-A-N. You can pre-order now. Omid, thanks once again. I know you're coming on in a few weeks anyway to talk about your book. And I do want to talk about the curse of history. And, and I, you know, one thing I've felt ever since the beginning of my own explorations into crypto is that it's very much a natural evolution that is happening in the history of money. Like some form of non-fiat digital money was going to happen at some point. And this happens to be the time when it's probably going, it, when it's probably happening, it makes sense. And I really am interested in, in your view on the, on the history of all this and, and the crypto cure for money markets and platforms. So I look forward when you come back in a few weeks, but thanks so much for answering my skepticism on why are we even thinking about this stuff at all? Uh, but you're right. There's trillions of dollars in value here. We're just an inning one. And there's a lot of very serious, intense use cases. So, so thanks for answering my skepticism. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. 